Welcome back to the Star of Rock Murders with Andy Hale, a podcast where we have been taking a deep dive into a triple murder that took place in 1960 in the Star of Rock State Park. Three women were brutally bludgeoned to death while taking a hike in this scenic woods. My client, Chester Weger, was a 21-year-old dishwasher at the time. He got arrested and charged with the case, had a trial, and was convicted. Served over 60 years in prison, is now out on parole. He's 83 years old. He'll be 84 in March. We have been making the case on this podcast, in all our episodes, that Chester Weger is innocent and had absolutely nothing to do with this horrific triple murder. Today, bonus episode number four, episode number 18. We want to give you an update about what the state's attorney's office has told us, where we go from here, and some further forensic testing that is going to take place. We got a lot to talk about. Let's begin. Whitney Braun, it's December. Thanksgiving has come and gone. It's December. Christmas is three weeks away. Your son, JJ, is three months old. Am I right about this? He is. He's three months old now. And we're doing bonus episode number four. Number 18 in total. I would have never imagined we would be on episode 18. But we are. We are. And I wanted to get back together and drop this bonus episode to give everybody an idea of we have a development uh, of where we're at and where we go from here. So let me recap. We basically had assembled all of our evidence from the past you know, year and submitted it to the Will County State's Attorney's Office back in the first week of October, I think it was. Sent them like 80 exhibits. I had a face-to-face meeting. I answered all their questions. And they just got back to me and told me they are not not going to vacate the conviction. They talked about this being hearsay evidence and unverified evidence, not enough in their opinion to warrant vacating the conviction. (sighs) So that is disappointing. Uh, Not totally surprising, but absolutely, absolutely disappointing because I felt we had an overwhelming case of evidence of Chester Weger's innocence. Again, I don't have to prove who committed the murders. I have to show that Chester Weger did not. And I thought we had done that. And we had so many, like I said, there were 80 exhibits. Each one, you could argue, oh, that's not enough alone. But collectively, it was, in my Mm -hmm. opinion. It really was, like overwhelmingly. And let me just start with one, which was, which kind of gets brushed under the rug. You know, when Will County told me about hearsay and and unverified evidence, well, that doesn't apply to the DNA evidence. Yeah. There was a hair, right? There's a hair. Let's just repeat this. There's a hair found on Miss Murphy's glove. It's, that's the finger where her fingertip was cut off. It's also the same finger where a hair was tested in 1960 and found to be dissimilar to Chester Weger. We tested that hair. We got DNA results. It is not Chester Weger. It's a male profile of somebody else. 
in my opinion, in the cases I've seen, that's a DNA exoneration. That hair is from the killer, one of the killers, because I think there's more than one. It shows that Chester Weger didn't do it. Uh, it proves he didn't do it. And if that's all I had, I still think you have a compelling case. But when you combine that with the other 79 pieces of evidence that I submitted, including the woman whose grandfather told her it was a mob hit, the man from Hennepin who recounted his conversation with his friend Smokey Rona that it was a mob hit, the telephone operator memo where she hears this conversation between two men, calls traced to William Palmatier, but the kid's got bloody overalls in the trunk of the car. He's confronted by the Illinois State Police. There's a guy, Lupe Cardenas, who comes in the bar every day, who's a mob guy. I mean, like, the log's not the murder weapon. I mean, the confession's ridiculous. You know, the twine didn't come from the lodge. I mean, I can go on and on and on and on and on. And I just felt like we made an overwhelming case, you know? So I'm so confused here because, I, I, I mean, given the preponderance of evidence, what more? I mean, what what more do you have to show in their opinion to open the door to this? Well, good question. The answer is I don't know. You know, I had an initial meeting where I went out there and I basically summarized all the evidence. And then I asked for a follow-up meeting to basically go out there and kind of see where they were, answer any questions. And they they wouldn't have a second meeting with me. They just sent me an email. They just sent me an email saying, no, we're, we're not going to make it to conviction. Uh, there's not enough. Um, so I was not able to ask those questions. For, for example, my biggest disappointment and my biggest criticism is this. I had two key huge witnesses that I just talked about. The woman whose grandfather was in the mafia and said and told her, I, sent, I handpicked the team of guys to go down there to kill those women because one of the husbands wanted his wife killed. And then we had the guy from Hennepin who said, I was friends with Smokey Rona. He told me it was a mob hit. Husbands were involved, right? What was really disappointing to me, and this is what I'm critical of, is that the Will County State's Attorney's Office did not even seek to interview those two people, okay? How do you not go talk to those two witnesses and meet them face-to-face and have them tell you the story. I mean, the case is 60 years old. You know, we're not going to have an eyewitness. Yeah. But, but if, if those two witnesses are deemed to be credible and you combine it with everything else I have, how is that not enough? I mean, take the most credible person you know. I don't know who that might be. You know, maybe it's your mother or mm-hmm. maybe it's your school teacher or maybe it's, you know, your dean at your school. What if that was the person who said, you know, it was a mob thing. My grandfather told me this. Like, there's nothing at all about these two witnesses that makes them non-credible. Yeah. In fact, everything about them is credible. Everything jives. So, yeah, it's hearsay. But in a post-conviction case, the court is allowed by statute to consider hearsay evidence. It's proper evidence. You give it the weight you want to give it. So it's not like it's not it's not like a regular criminal trial or civil trial where hearsay evidence is not admissible. It's specifically by statute is admissible. And so I just harp on the fact that to me, what's really disappointing is, and I just don't, I think it's indefensible. 
is not to interview those two witnesses. Why would you not do that? I mean, why wasn't there like, oh my God, let's talk to these two people. Let's, let's ask, let's meet them face to face and ask them questions and, and see for ourselves. They didn't even do that. And I know they didn't do that because I've talked to those two witnesses and they've told me, no, nobody reached out to me. Nobody tried to talk to me. Um, Andy, can I ask something that I don't want to, I don't want to get you in hot water here, but do you think that they even read your submission? I mean, do do you feel like the state went into this just kind of going, ugh, this again, we don't want to deal with it. Okay. You feel like it was actually given time. Okay. At the first meeting, there were, um, there were a lot of questions I got that were based on the materials I sent over. Clearly they had read it. Um, I will say this though, the very first time we met, you know, which was a year and a half ago when they first got the case, Will County, there was a, there was a real sense of urgency. There was a real sense of, wow, let's get to the bottom of this. Let's, let's figure Mm -hmm. this out. And I got the sense now it's more like, just like they're, you know, playing defense rather than, Mm -hmm. than anything like playing defense. Um, that's my personal opinion. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, based on my interaction, and uh, like I said, um, I, I'm not gonna. I don't want to get too deep into this, um, but I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed. Yeah. I thought we had made an overwhelming case. I thought the DNA alone was 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 a huge, huge point. Combine it with everything else we had, it was just an overwhelming case, and. It's frustrating, especially when time is of the essence. Chester Weger is 83 years old. He's going to be 84 in March. Um, you know, it's critical that we get to the bottom of this and we get resolution and justice as soon as we can. So is there anything else you want to ask me about that before I kind of go into where we go from here? Yeah. I mean, so I guess my question is, one have you talked to Chester about this and what's, what's his reaction to all of it? And my second question is, do you have any suspicions as to why the energy in the room changed and why, why there was this transition from excitement over getting to the bottom of the case to just kind of trying to make it go away? Well, first of all, yes, I've talked to Chester. Uh, I've talked to his sister. I've talked to his nieces. Uh, there's obvious disappointment, you know, um, this would have been such a great Christmas present, you know, mm-hmm. to get a finding of innocence, vacating the conviction. So I'm hoping we get that next year. So yeah, we had that, we had that conversation. Um, I don't know why the energy has changed, but, but, but it did. I, I mean, that, that is a fact. It absolutely mm-hmm. did. And I can't answer that question, but I can tell you it wasn't the same a year and a half ago as it's been recently. And let me say this, it's not like in that year and a half, my case has gotten worse. Okay. My case has only gotten significantly better. You know, that first meeting a year and a half ago, when there was a real sense of urgency and let's, let's dive into this. I didn't know about the woman and her grandfather and the mafia angle. I didn't know about the man from Hennepin. I didn't know about the telephone operator memo. I didn't know about the memo saying that the uh, tree branch wasn't the murder weapon or the log wasn't matched to trees in St. Louis Canyon 
or the, you know, I mean, on and on and on. My case only got incredibly better. So it's even more stunning that things kind of just, it seemed to me like, you know, a wall was put up. Um, so I, you know, I can't answer that. Only, yeah. only other people can answer that question. Um, but let's talk about where we go from here. Cause, uh, the fight is far from over. We're going to get there, Whitney. We are going to get there. We are just taking the road less traveled. Uh, we're not taking the highway. We're taking the scenic route. Uh, we're kind of winding through rivers and valleys and we're going to get there, Whitney. We are going to get there. I tell you that right now. Um, so what this means is, you know, Will County State's Attorney's Office had the power to vacate that conviction. They still do because they were appointed special prosecutor. But since they said no, we now can we now have to go to courts. We're going to file a petition for post-conviction relief in the courts in Illinois, in the state courts where we've been, down in Ottawa, Illinois. And we're going to present all our evidence to our judge. And we're going to do the same thing with the court. We're going to present all that evidence to a judge. Will County will have a chance to oppose that on behalf of the state of Illinois, and the judge will ultimately decide. Uh, I feel confident in the evidence we have. The issue is it's just going to take a lot more time, you know, uh, obviously, to do all this. Um, so we're going we're gonna to file something in court. Our goal is to file no later than uh, probably by the end of January uh, and as soon as we can. So, you know, it's hard in December. There's so much going on with the holidays. I'm thinking we'll file this sometime in January. As soon as we do, uh, I'll let people know. I'll post it on the website. Everybody can read it. It's going to be comprehensive. It's going to be huge. There's going to be things that we haven't even talked about. I'm talking to experts. It's going to be even more comprehensive. But let me now focus on some additional forensic evidence. Can I tell you about that? Please. All right. So there's still forensic components that are at play here. So. To kind of, you know, summarize where we were, when we submitted all this different evidence, hairs, uh, twine, cigarette butts, we only got a, what they call a nuclear STR DNA profile on, on one of the hairs. That was a male profile, not Chester. Okay. That hair, I just found out today, it looks like we're going to be able to submit it to a state, state of Illinois DNA database to see if we can get a match. That it looks like we don't have enough of the technical DNA profile requirements to submit it into a national DNA database. Uh, I won't bore you with the details about that. It looks like maybe we can just do the state. So there's a chance that hair could get matched to somebody in a state DNA database. That could completely change everything in the case. Uh, let's say it matched to somebody who was a known mafia person i mean i mean it'd be like it'd be game over you know um the hard part with that is a lot of these i know in the national codis dna database they didn't start collecting dna until the late 90s yeah so that would mean somebody who was involved in star rock murders in 1960 would have had to have gotten arrested almost 40 years later yeah right and submitted their dna that's that's kind of unlikely not impossible but that's, that's hard. That's a kind of a long shot. Um, so we're doing two other things. We're also doing a type of testing called mitochondrial DNA testing. 
So there were numerous hairs. We could not get this nuclear or STR profile, but mitochondrial DNA testing is frequently done on hairs. It can allow us to get a profile to get an exclusion. So we're not going to be able to say, oh, these hairs came from Joe Smith. Yeah. But we can say these hairs did not come from Chester Weger. Mm-hmm. So I think we've got six more hairs that fall into that category. If we can get exclusions on those hairs, it's going to be huge. Because the argument now is, and, and Will County didn't even say this to me, but like in talking to people, you know, oh, well, you got one hair. You know, like they try to make it sound like it's not a big deal. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. I just got one piece of crime scene evidence that doesn't match Chester Weger. Like, like you need more than one, right? But if every we get several more that, hairs. Andy, oh, it just, I'm sorry. I mean, I don't mean to cut you off, but it's just, every time you say that, like, I just feel so frustrated because it's like, what more do you need? You have a piece of hair that's not Chester's on the glove of the victim. And I just feel like, I feel like the goalpost just keeps moving. And it's, and I feel like, what do you need to have? Do you need to have the Lord on high come down on a cloud and then, you know, hover over Starved Rock and say, it wasn't Chester. And and then maybe, and then maybe we, you know, we get people to, to, to see this. I, I don't know. I, it's very frustrating. Well, let me say this too, because, you know, the fact that there were a lot of hair, like numerous hairs found in these victims, I think shows the fact that there were multiple killers. Yes. You yes. know, there were, there were newspaper articles. We posted these on the website already saying, you know, Miss Odin had hair in her hand. Miss Murphy had hair on her glove. There were different types of hair, different colors of hair. Shows you it's a multiple offender case. Yeah. And here's the thing. This is the thing. The only argument would be that the hair was not related to the crime, right? So, but that to me is impossible here because look what happened. These women got brutally beaten. There was a struggle. They then got dragged into this cave. They had their bodies displayed. You think of all the handling that went on with those poor women. Mm -hmm. Those poor women. You mean to tell me that this hair on Miss Murphy's glove was on her glove when she left the lodge to go for that walk? Uh, I don't think so. That hair got deposited on her during the crime. And so, yes. And in fact, here's, here's, here's the checkmate argument to that, Whitney. And people forget about this. In 1960, the state took a hair from that very same location, meaning the finger of Mrs. Murphy's index finger from her glove where her fingertip got off, cut off, okay? The state took one of those hairs and sent it, as you recall, Mm-hmm. to the Washington University Medical Center to be tested. Let's pause. Why did they do that, Whitney? They did that because, A, they clearly thought it was related to the crime scene, mm-hmm. and B, they thought it was Chester Weaker, for yeah. sure. They thought it was Chester Weaker's hair. They didn't test the dark-colored hair that was in Mrs. Odin's palm. They yeah. tested the light-colored hair on Mrs. Murphy. And you know what? It was found to be dissimilar to Chester. So my point is, the state even conceded in 1960 the significance of those hairs found on Miss Murphy's glove. And again, if that's all we had, maybe, maybe you could argue it's not enough. But Whitney, with everything else you and I have talked about in these prior 17 episodes, like you say, at what point, at what point is it enough? Do we got to have a, do we have to have a videotape, you know, um, 
There's a Pruder tape. Somebody, yeah. somebody took a, a, you know, I mean, it's like. Well, it's, I thought we had the Zelensic memo, right? I thought, right? I, thought, yeah. I thought we had our yeah. Zapruder tape in the form of the Zelensic memo. And I guess we did. That's what, it's really disheartening to me. And I'll, I'm just going to be frank and apologies for my emotional outburst here. But it's just, it's really disheartening to me because when you first told me that the, that the, uh, the state's attorney has, had declined to move forward with the exoneration and vacation of the conviction, excuse me, I was disappointed, not surprised. Not surprised because I have just sort of grown to have this um, cynicism with regard to the state and their handling of this case. I just feel like they want it to just go away. Well, you know, I will, nothing's going to be enough. I will also point this out. This is this is this is just factual. Okay, after that first meeting, I said well, there was a lot of energy in the room. Um, I walked out of that meeting thinking, "Wow, this is really you know we're going to get to the bottom of this." Mm-hmm. After that. Will County was opposed to me even looking at the evidence. You remember yes. that? They didn't even want me to look at the evidence. Mm-hmm. And then they were opposed to me doing DNA testing. Okay. Yeah. Let's just point that out and we'll leave it at that. Okay. Yeah. They were opposed to those two things. We'll, we'll leave it at that. I could say a lot more on that, but I yeah. won't right now. Yeah, I agree. So I talked about mitochondrial DNA testing. That We're going to get those results by probably by the end of January. So we'll have an update on that. But here's another thing that we're going to try to do. This is really exciting. Um, the same lab that has done this DNA testing, Bodhi Technology, they have a department, they have a genealogy department. So we talked with somebody last week. Uh, that hair that we did the nu- that we got the profile on, the nuclear STR profile, mm-hmm. amazingly, there's an extract still left from that hair, which you need. That extract is going to be used for further testing. Uh, there's a genealogy, you know, group that are going to develop a profile from that hair. And then we're going to submit it. Hopefully, we're going to be able to get a result and, you know, submit it to genealogy sites and try to, I know you're familiar with some of this. I know you're yes. a kind of a whiz on uh, some of these family trees. We're going to try. Isn't that what happened in... Uh, Golden yes. State Killer? Yeah, the Golden State Killer. So for those who are not familiar, which I'm assuming anyone who listens to True Crime podcasts like ours is already aware of this, so apologies if I'm, uh, I'm telling you what you already know. But yes, the, the Golden State Killer um, was ultimately caught through a uh, connection to a third cousin. They tested DNA found at the crime scene in the 60s and 70s. His spree went over a decade uh, in Northern California. They tested that DNA uh, against a, a genealogical database, matched it to a third cousin, and then worked backwards to find uh, a relation to that person it matched who was in the general vicinity and was a suspect at the time, and then used other evidence to kind of close the deal. And I just, it's so exciting. It's such a, a phenomenal way to to get at the truth. And I'm that's all my cynicism that I feel towards the state. I feel an equal amount of optimism when it comes to this genealogy uh, DNA research. I'm so excited about it. You know what? I was saying this. I, I agree with you 100%. You can see the smile on my face right now because yeah, I can. I just thought, to me, this would be the fitting kind of conclusion. This new technology, this genealogy, this kind of miracle way that you can take a DNA sample, match it up with you know millions and millions of DNA profiles out there to somebody's third cousin, work your way back, create the family tree, and solve the case. Whitney, 
Would that be an amazing final chapter? I could see it. I can. I, I can feel it. I feel it, and I, I. I mean, I don't want to jinx us at all, but I. I just feel like with the sheer numbers of people who are doing uh, DNA testing, you know, through all of these different services out there, the chances that some relation somewhere has deposited their DNA into the database uh, makes me very optimistic. Very, yeah. very optimistic. Yeah. No, and so that process now that process is going to take uh several months, so we're not going to know that for probably i think I was told gosh, it'd be at least uh it's it's maybe like twenty weeks fourteen mm-hmm. to twenty weeks so i mean we're we're talking sometime in the spring, sure, we may know that, so that's gonna be a longer term issue, but my point is we've got all these things still in the works mm-hmm. we've got the hair we're going to put into the state CODIS database. Got the mitochondrial DNA testing on those six other hairs. We got the genealogy we're going to do on the on the hair on Miss Murphy. So all that is still in play. Hang tight, everybody. That's all in the works. And there's one other thing that's still in the works. If you remember, our last episode, we were talking about um, the Steve Stout documents. You know, there was a gold mine of stuff. In the Steve Stout documents I saw at the LaSalle Historical Society, that's where I saw, for example, the interview with Glenn Palmatier, where they talked about Lupe Cardenas coming in that bar in Aurora every day, the chief, and talking to Glenn Palmatier, which made me realize Lupe Cardenas was a mob guy. So I connected the mob to Glenn Palmatier. That's where we found out Glenn Palmatier knew Robert Murphy, one of the husbands, you know? That's where we found out that memo where. They tried, they went back in the canyon with the log, the alleged murder weapon, and they could not match it to any of the trees in St. Louis Canyon. I mean, I found so much great stuff in those Steve Stout documents. Well, here's the thing. We served a subpoena on him because he had a lot more that we hadn't seen. He was ordered to turn all those documents over to the court, which apparently he has done. The court is now looking at those documents first, and then we're going to be able to look at those documents. So I'm hoping... Yeah. That when I get access to Steve, Do- Steve Stout documents part two, that there's more good stuff in there. That there's more good stuff in there. Um, so we still got that hanging out there. So there is so much more that that's going to get updated. You know, between now and January, uh, now in the spring, and we are continuing. And I want to stress this: we are continuing to investigate, talk to people do whatever we can. I I talk to people every week and I still get new information, anecdotal stories. You need to talk to this person. You need to talk to that person. Uh, Hopefully we'll get more documents down the road. So we are continuing, Whitney, to get to the truth. And we are are continuing to fight. We're continuing to investigate. I have not lost one ounce of my enthusiasm. If anything, I'm more motivated now than I've ever been. It's just going to take, it's just taking longer, you know? Yeah. And that it is what it is. We're going to have to just keep fighting. No, it's a story 60, 62, almost 63 years in the making. And, uh, it's, uh, it's going to have, I think it's going to I think it will eventually have a sa- the satisfying conclusion in the sense that I think we will get our answers and our closure, but it just, it is, it's frustrating that that closure could come sort of now, but 
the state well, is not willing to at this moment. In yeah, time. I, I, we, I, I got, I feel like we've got another couple chapters to write. They're going to yeah, add no, to agree. this. That are going to add to the story and really, really bring some closure to it. Because I, I want to put this to bed. Like, I don't want it to be where, oh, you know, the court vacated Chester's conviction, and and you know, you got, you still got uh, people out there saying, well, I still think he's guilty. Like, yeah. I wanted to put, I want to just put this to bed, the nail in the coffin, once and for all definitively. Like I said, even though we don't have to do that, that's not my burden. But when I think about this case, 1960, three women taking a walk in the park, brutally murdered, 21-year-old dishwasher charged with the crime eight months later, confession-only case, and then all the evidence we've uncovered, you and I could not make this up. The no. twists, the turns, we, we, we just, I mean, the fact that the polygraph examiner New Robert Murphy. I mean, like the polygraph examiner got reward money. Harlan Warren got reward money. We would have, we would have never written this into our screenplay if we made no. something up. It's just too outlandish. But our day's coming, yeah. and I want to just I want to tell everybody out there, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. All the emails and love we've gotten. Please spread the word. Tell everybody you know about the podcast. Urge everybody to listen. And urge anybody you know who might have information, reach out. Nothing is too small. Anything you know, anything you heard, something your mom told you, your grandmother told you, it all could make a difference. So go to our podcast website, andyhillpodcast.com, reach out, send us an email. But thank you, thank you, thank you so much for our support. And one last thing, we got nominated, people. We got nominated for uh, a podcast award. There's something called the Signal Awards. And we were nominated and there's like a, people can vote. We're going to post more information about this on our website, but I need people to vote for the star of rock murders with Andy Hale. We need to, we need this. This is really exciting. Um, our podcast has gotten a lot of recognition and I want to thank you, Whitney, for everything you've done oh, along the way, because I could not have done it without you. And so Thank you, thank you, thank you for all your contributions. Oh no, no, no! I mean, it's uh, it's it's an honor and a privilege to get to be part of this journey. Well, we will keep everybody posted. I wanted to provide that update about the state's attorney's office and where we go from here and the forensic issues. So, stay tuned, subscribe, stay focused. Stay alert, and we will continue to keep you apprised. As soon as we hear of anything, we will let you know. Thank you again for all your support.